Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Alrighty, so we are in a new series, started last week. Uh, I could never believe in a God who... dot, dot, dot. I could never believe in a God who... Last week we looked at... I could never believe in a God who just seems to hide, who we talk about, but where is the evidence? Like, what's the story? Uh, all these Christians are uh, super convenient. We believe in a God who is invisible. Where is he? Can't see him. That's convenient. Like, good on you. Talked, talked about that last week. This week, we, we have a... <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's a large topic. It's, um, I may ask for your grace for an additional, like, five minutes than how long we would normally preach for. Um, I'm going to aim for as short as possible, but this is, this is the topic we're asking this week, or that we're, this is the sentence we're finishing this week. And all these sentences have been provided by people who have said these very words, or words to these effect, which I'll, I'll show you in a minute. Uh, today, we're talking about, I could never believe in a God who cares more about my sex life than sex trafficking. That's what we're looking at today. And people, actually multiple people said things uh, pretty much just like this. I can never believe in a God who seems to just care about my sex life, but not so much about sex trafficking. Not, not about other, other kinds of things. A couple of, I mean, there's a lot going on in this, in this kind of complaint or objection, um, which is why it may take just, again, a little bit longer. Uh, the feeling that I don't want anyone to tell me what I can or cannot do, that's, that's in there. Can't, I don't want someone telling me what I can do in my bedroom or just in my life in general. Uh, what you see in there is maybe God is a prude. God doesn't like sex. The feeling that people should care deeply about victims of sex trafficking and ending all kinds of trafficking altogether, that's in there as well. We, we see that. Um, fourthly, what you hear in this objection is Christians seem to really care about everybody's sex life. Uh, that seems a little bit strange. Fifthly, Christians seem to not really care about victims of sex trafficking as much as they do about everyone's private sex lives. We'll look at that as well. Uh, <clears throat> number six, if God really wanted to end sex trafficking, he surely would. Therefore, God isn't able to or doesn't care to. That's kind of intrinsic in the, in the statement as well. Uh, seventh, like I said, there's a lot in this one little statement. Um, that my sex determines my identity and I get to choose or express my identity, not, not God getting to choose for me or some thousands-year-old book or ancient kind of philosophy or religion, uh, those kinds of things. I might, I might be reading too much into this one little phrase, uh, but for me it's packed with like subtext and, and pretext. Uh, other, other ways that this was said or uh, the objection was worded was, I can never believe in a God who cares more about what I do with my body than people in poverty. I can never believe in a God who micromanages my life or cares about what I do in my bedroom or cares what I do with my body. I can never believe in a God who wants to limit my freedom. And my favourite out of all of the objections that we got when we asked people, finish this sentence, I can never believe in a God who... dot dot dot. My very favourite out of all of them. It's it read like this. It's actually from a friend of mine from school like 20, 25 years ago. Uh, I can never believe in a God who creates a universe that turns for billions of years with billions of planets, yet is uniquely concerned with the sexual behaviour of one single species on one planet that has existed for a minute fraction of that time. That was his major objection. And when you read it like that, you're like, actually, you know what? That seems like a credible objection, right? What, why is... Why do Christians seem to care so much about sex? What's the deal with that? I can never believe in a God who cares more about my sex life than sex trafficking. Uh, I mean, I really do think that uh, there's good reason for people to, to say this. And, and largely, in the West at least, uh, in Australia, let's just talk about our own context, in Australia, um, some representing Christians are, I believe, really largely to blame. So we can just lay the blame at our own feet here for just a minute and see this objection for what it is. We have been, as a, gr as a group of people, or at least those who would um, claim to represent Christians or Christianity or represent or speak on behalf of God in Australia in recent years, we've been extremely vocal on issues relating to sex. And I actually believe rightly so. 
As we'll see in Scripture, our sex actually is very important. I mean, uh, I hope that you're not really squirmish about talking about sex, because I'll use that word a lot tonight. Uh, I should just put that out there. Uh, We won't like get into like gory details and things like that, although we'll get into some detail. Um, But but we want to talk about we want to talk about sex, and we'll talk about sex trafficking or trafficking in general. And we'll see where where does this complaint come from? Is there merit to the complaint? And I believe there is merit to the complaint. Uh, But what actually is a much better reading? What does the gospel actually say and speak into this objection? We've been rightly, I think, very vocal on issues when it comes to sex. And again, we'll show you from Scripture why that is so. But we haven't used our collective passion and voice in the same way and in the same kinds of ways with the same veracity, or or, or veracity, I should say, to advocate for those who are suffering and victims of things like, and injustices like, sex trafficking. And so for people who are outside the church, not Christians, don't know Jesus, what they're hearing from Christians is, what you do in your bedroom is very important and of greatly secondary importance are things like what's happening to people inside our country and around the world when it comes to uh, slavery, when it comes to other kinds of issues of, of justice and, and just humanity. And, and rightly, people are coming back and saying, well, if that's what God is about, if God does not care about the plight of those suffering significant injustice, but he does care about what I do in my bedroom, or, or what I do behind closed doors, or what I do, you know, what we do between two consenting adults uh, in, in the privacy of our own, wherever we may be. If that's what God's about, I don't actually, I don't think that God's a God really worth worshiping. And to that, I'd say, I don't disagree. If that is the God that we worship, what kind of God is that? Especially for someone who's, who, who's like. Our worldview or philosophical kind of starting point is all that there is is the material. Like sex is just a purely like mechanistic uh, biological function. There's nothing deeper really going on. Uh, if that's all it is, then if, of course, if this is the things we're talking about, something that's purely functional versus people dying and worse, being treated horrifically from childhood into if adulthood, if they make it, then of course the contrast is stark enough for us to say, yeah, that's a God not worth worshipping. I could never worship a God who cared about this but not that. So we look at this objection and go, yeah, that's, man, that, that's really true. We've got to own that the church in Australia is seen primarily about what we are against. And we've been most vocal most recently about sex, At the same time, we have this Royal Commission which has come about exposing the just blatant, heinous hypocrisy of those claiming to represent Jesus when it comes to sex. And so rightly so, people say, yeah, I can never believe in a God who cares more about my sex life than sex trafficking. So does that mean that sex isn't important, just write it off? Uh, No, I don't don't think so. Uh, Is it important to God? Yes. I'll show you from Scripture why and how it's very important. Uh, is it important to Christians? Is sex important to Christians? I mean, I put it to you, it depends on the Christian. Uh, in, in my research, uh, some studies suggest as many as 80% of unmarried Christian young adults have been sexually active, just at some stage, in their Christian walk. Uh, 64% of Christians in their last year, this is young adult Christians, 64% of young adult Christians sexually active outside of marriage, uh, and 42% currently. These are just the, the, the best stats. Which seems to me uh, that in a, in a not, obviously not you guys, not you guys, obviously, uh, but in a, in, a, in a church community of 100 people, we're talking about 80%, potentially, again, not you guys, of Christian young adults that... Uh, don't take, don't found their ideas of sex based on what Scripture says or are ignorant to it or disregard it. 
So sex is important to God? I'll show you, yes, absolutely it is. It's not just some like mechanical, purely materialistic, biological function of the human body. Uh, there is so much more going on to it, which is why it's important. What we don't want to do is, uh, is elevate sex uh, and become legalistic around sex uh, in a way that diminishes our advocacy for other things that God is incredibly passionate about. That's, that's my goal for tonight. So if these stats are anywhere near correct, even if they are a quarter accurate, like if they're 75% inaccurate, that's still a huge deal from, from my perspective. If we're talking about where do we get our ideas of what is sex and what is it for and how is it good and how is it um, used by Christians in a good way, then these stats are significantly worrying, actually. All right, so what is sex? We're going to look at that um, right from the very beginning. In fact, you'll see as we look at the New Testament, in particular Jesus and Paul, when they're talking about sex, they're talking about sex within the bounds of the relationship of, of a marriage. And most of the time they talk about sex, they take it all the way back to Adam and Eve. They took it back to the garden. They took it back to the first humans that God says, uh, I, I'm putting you together. I'm sanctioning this for this reason. Uh, you know, one will leave a family and be united to the other and they will become one flesh, is what he says. And when Jesus is talking about this, when Paul's talking about this, when the scripture writers are talking about this in the New Testament, they always harken back to this one thing. And so we want to start there as well. Therefore, this is Genesis 2, 24, Mark 10, Ephesians 5. They all resound. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Because what, what reason? For what reason? Therefore, for this reason, because God made them male and female. Because God made them for each other. The husband and the wife. Not just any man and any woman, but a, a man and a woman. A husband and a wife together. Therefore, for this reason, because God has brought them together, made them to go together, one will leave his family and be united to his wife, and they're no longer two, but one. Something happens at, when, when we have sex. Something happens. Uh, is it biological? Absolutely. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you in a second about some of the biology of that. Not, not in gory detail, uh, but, but some of it. Is it spiritual? Absolutely. And unfortunately, if the statistics are in any way accurate, we have jettisoned any ideas about the spiritual aspect of sex. And we only approach it from a purely like fleshly, like functional, materialistic perspective. Primarily bonding uh, here from Scripture, right from the beginning, uh, sorry, sex is for bonding a husband and a wife. It's unifying. Sex is healing. Uh, it is fun. It's pleasurable. It's supposed to be pleasurable. It's supposed to be good. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be enjoyable. It's made for those things. Uh, for a husband and a wife to enjoy each other in this kind of way. Not, I'm, I'm not trying to be crude or controversial. I'm trying to be as, uh, speak as plainly as I can. Sex is good and a gift from God for the bonding of a husband and a wife. That's what it's for. Studies have found from the purely like, biological perspective, uh, in the 24 hours after having sex, you emotionally bond with the person that you've had sex with. So we'll put a pin in the spiritual and in the, uh, the, the what, why God gave it to us, and then we'll talk about some of the, just the mechanics of it, and we'll come back afterwards. Uh, in researching this kind of bond, Brian Sands, he, he shows that oxytocin is a really big factor. So uh, produced mainly in the hypothalamus. If you know about these things in greater detail than I do, then by all means, share about these things over dinner afterwards. You know, deep in the limbic system, part of the brain. Um, it's either released into the blood um, by, via the pituitary gland or other parts of the brain, spinal cord. Uh, when it binds to the oxytocin, oxytocin receptors, it influences, as well the studies find, influences behavior. And the psychologist, this little, this little thing that the body creates influences your emotions and your physiology. It's not just when uh, 
It's not just released when you have sex, mind you. Uh, oxytocin has been dubbed the cuddle hormone or the love hormone because, DeAngelis discovered and many have attested, it creates bonds, trust, and generosity in us. Whenever you feel comfort or security, the, bio the biology, the biological thing that's happening in you is uh, due to oxytocin, or at least oxytocin is involved. It's involved in every form of human bonding, horseman shows. It's the same hormone that uh, mothers produce at childbirth to help bond, or help go through that kind of ordeal, uh, but then also to bond with the child. It's a very, very powerful hormone, uh, and even just from a biological perspective, uh, this hormone is released during sex by both the man and the woman, and is, is used to create a strong bond. It's not just for fun, not just for pleasure, uh, but in the act of sex, you're creating a bond. We know there's, uh, from Scripture, that there is a spiritual bond, a one fleshing that happens. And even in your flesh, like your, your material flesh, there is this bond, bonding that happens as well. Uh, Dr. Daniel Amen writes, um, <clears throat> whenever a person's sexually involved with another person, this is non-Christians writing, by the way, neurochemical changes occur in both their brains that encourages limbic emotional bonding, yet limbic bonding isn't the reason casual sex uh, yet, limit bonding is the reason casual sex doesn't really work for most people on a whole mind and body level. Two people may decide to have sex just for the fun of it, yet something is occurring on another level that might, they might not have decided on at all. Sex is enhancing an emotional bond between them, whether they want it or not. One person, often the woman, is bound to form an attachment and will be hurt when a casual affair ends. One reason is usually the woman who is hurt most is that the female limbic system is larger than the male's. This is... This physiological findings. At, in a purely like physiological level, uh, if you have had sex, you, you'll know. Uh, it is very enjoyable and creates uh, an emotional, deeper, like physiologically founded, but psychological bond with that other person. That's what sex is for. It's one, it's one of the reasons. It's one of the things that sex is for. It is just one small piece of a broader classification of relational intimacy when we're talking about God and with each other. Uh, Genesis 2, again, Matthew 19, say, a man and a woman become one flesh. Paul echoes this concept in 1 Corinthians 6. He says that a man who has sexual intercourse with a prostitute unites himself with that woman. This is the language of intimacy, of oneness, of, of not, no longer being two, but now being one. This is why... The Bible takes sex so seriously. Now, you might still be saying, but okay, I get that, but why are Christians still so, like, mad about sex? Why are they so prudish? Why do they care what other people are doing? Now, if, they're, if they want to, like, take risks, isn't that just up to them? Like, go for it. Now, what else is sex for? Sex, we see in Scripture, is for making babies. Sex... Uh, is still the number one um, cause of babies. <laughs> Across the world. Uh, of all time. Uh, back to our passages, Genesis 2 again. Um, Mark, uh, Genesis 2, Mark 10. Um, sex is to bring together a new family. The husband and the wife. And the secondary, if possible, to have kids. It's there to uh, help create that uh, that bond between the husband and the wife, and then where possible also to produce offspring. Thirdly, Scripture tells us, uh, it is also, sex is a sign. It's not, it's not meant to be on display, it's not what I mean, but sex is a sign. It's a, it signifies something. It signifies what you believe about sex. Sex shows how you treat sex, what you do with sex, or don't do with sex, is a sign of what you believe about God. Sex speaks to, in fact, sex in the bounds of marriage speaks to the consummation of the great wedding feast to come when Christ comes for his bride. It actually points to something. Now, these three things, so relational intimacy, for making babies, for, as a sign, uh, speaking of something that is to come, for these reasons, sex, and just because sex was gifted to us by God, again, for all of these things, 
for fun, for healing, for bonding. Uh, it's a gift from God. Christians take it very seriously. It means something. It means something. It speaks to something. It means something. God made sex enjoyable. He made it productive. He made it good. And so God isn't a prude. We can take that one off the table. God gave us sex uh, for our good in its right context. He made it for a particular purpose, for a particular reason. This is why, this is where Christians go from. Uh, sex is, is all of these things, we believe it, but not just in the abstract, but it actually means something for us personally as Christians, and then outside of us as Christians, for general human flourishing, it means something. This is why Christians, uh, this is the, this is the I would suggest, right part of why Christians are vocal about it. I'll say then there's a wrong part of why Christians are vocal about it, and that is to try to impose their beliefs onto somebody else. Sometimes when you impose your belief onto somebody else that disagrees with you, uh, there can be a, a just reason. So, for example, I believe murder is not great. And if you are attempting to murder somebody else, then I, because of the value of each person because they're made in the image of God, uh, my belief will, overcome, will dictate or determine that I will intervene or want to intervene, uh, whether through like, legislative processes or like, physically intervene in somebody taking somebody else's life, right? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a right use. The wrong use is saying, well, Christians are to behave like this. Christians are to, are to love one another. Christians are to reserve sex for the bounds of marriage. Therefore, we should say to everybody, you must only have sex within the bounds of marriage. Uh, they're different things. And I'll show you why in a minute. But what does Scripture say about the importance of sex? We must get into Scripture. We've been going for too long without touching Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6. This is what it says. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. Don't just wink at it. Don't walk past it. Certainly don't walk up to it. Don't see how close can I get? Where is the line? Let's like straddle the line. No, it says flee in the other direction as fast as you can from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. If you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And this translation, sexual immorality, it means any sex outside of marriage. So um, unmarried sex, adulterous sex, uh, homosexual sex, uh, any kind of sexual deviancy from God's gift, sex inside, sex inside of marriage. He says flee from all of those things. Why? Because you don't belong to yourself anymore. You are giving yourself away you're giving away something that doesn't belong to you anymore. You're giving away yourself. You're giving away uh, your body, um, which the Holy Spirit lives in and doesn't belong to you anymore. It's been purchased with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. Paul says, for the Christian, for the Christian, we flee sexual immorality. 2 Corinthians says, I fear, this is Paul talking to the Corinthians again, I fear when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. He's saying, man, if you, you belong to Jesus and you haven't repented of these things yet. Like, they're important. It's important. God is not just being prudish. These, this means something. Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named amongst you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, who is covetous, that is, idolater, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He's saying, man, if you're claiming to belong to Jesus, but you don't live as someone who belongs to Jesus... Do you belong to Jesus? If we look at those stats, and we look at 80%, or let's just look at the last year, people who, are, who would consider themselves sexually active just might not have a present, the present ability to be sexually active. 
almost two-thirds of Christian young adults, again, not, not you guys, obviously, but two-thirds of Christian young adults who are like, yeah, of course, I love Jesus, may come in here and, not in here, may come to their churches and raise their hands and, and play on the band and serve you know, their community. Saying, of course I belong to Jesus, but don't live like they belong to Jesus. Is sex a particular thing? Like, why are we talking about sex and not about covetousness or other kinds of idolatry? Uh, Because Paul specifically shows us sex is a particular thing. Anyone who commits other sins, sins outside the body. But, But when you commit a sexual sin, you are sinning against your own body, like the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's house you're sinning against. You don't belong to yourself, but you're giving yourself away, is what he's saying. This is why sexual sin is different. And then lastly, for now at least, um, I mean, we've got heaps of others, but we don't have time for them all. Um, Here's some homework for you. Read the Bible. 1 Corinthians 7, concerning about the matters with which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So the Corinthians wrote to Paul and said, hey, surely it's just better to just not have sex, right? If, if sex is so important, so, I mean, I'm assuming we don't know exactly what they wrote, but based on his response, we can infer that they wrote to him saying, sex just seems too hard to handle. Like it's just, it's, it's too much. And he writes back, but because of temptation, the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have the authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. So saying, he's not commanding everyone to get married. Singleness is a gift as well. You don't miss out on anything. You don't miss out on any of the human experience. You're not second-class citizens if you're single. You're not second-class citizens uh, in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of Earth. Earth. If you never have sex, sex is not the high-water mark of humanity. Sex is not the ultimate mark of human flourishing. We've got a whole conference about singleness coming up soon to show you that although you may desire to have a wife or a husband, which is a good desire, he says, in other places, if you can't control yourself, like if you're burning with passion, then just go and get married. Just do it. I spoke to someone, I won't identify them, I spoke to someone Thursday night, and he, that's a small identification there, <laughs> he said, <laughs> I don't want to give away any clues as to who this is, not from, not from this room. Uh, he said, like, I, I want to get married at some stage in the future. Man, how, what do you, how do you, I just, I really want to just, I, we haven't had sex, but I just want to jump my girlfriend's bones. Like, I, I just, I really strongly desire her physically. What the heck am I supposed to do? And I said, well, I mean, marry her. <laughs> marry her. He's like, yeah, but, you know, we, we, there, there are these reasons, these reasons, these, these reasons. I'm like, sure. Uh, you know, Scripture says if you can't, you're struggling with self-control. This is, I mean, on one hand, self-discipline is a fruit of the Spirit, and we want to pursue discipline. On the other hand, being so, like, attracted to the person who you want to marry is a very good thing. I would be far more worried if he had come to me and said, Eh, I just, it's just not something we struggle with. I'd be like, ugh. It's probably not great, bro. So what do we do? Like, you know, we, 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 we're putting things in place and we're doing, we've got these strategies. And I'm like, strategies are great. Accountability is great. Processes are really good. Uh, if you're still like just really, really struggling, just go and get married. Like, don't approach marriage flippantly, anybody. Like, don't, just don't do that. Don't say, well, here's a person uh, you know, he, he, I'm a man, she's a woman. We both like have this kind of really strange feeling when we're near each other, we should just go get married. I'm not trying to say approach marriage flippantly, but if there are no other barriers, go and get married. 
Marriage is, is, is a thing you should be prepared for, but it's not a thing, I, I mean, oh man, I'm going off script. Marriage is not a thing that you, uh, you wait and wait and wait until someday, way down there in the future, somehow you're ready for. Uh, it's not, the, it's not what you, you're just waiting for the perfect person. Just waiting to meet the, the one, the perfect person. You want, to meet, you want to meet someone, you want to be committing to someone who uh, you love, who you are attracted to, who you want to spend the rest of your life with, and then what do you do? You commit to that person. And then from that day forward, they are your person. And you only have eyes for that person. And you don't deviate your eyes from that person. And whatever that person becomes, that is your type of person. If he becomes overweight, you are into overweight people. <laughs> or you, you're into the gym with that person. If she dyes her hair brown, you're into brunettes. You know what I mean? What you need to do, uh, you will never, ever, ever be ready for, for marriage. And you will never, ever, ever meet the one perfect person who will complete you. Except if that person's name is Jesus. And so once you met Jesus, you committed to him, if he is most glorious in your life, I'm way off script, I'm so sorry. If he is most glorious in your life, and you meet somebody, and that person has Jesus most glorious in their life, and you spend some time getting to know that, and you, you can, like there's evidence of that over time, not too long a time. My wife and I like to have this like one year hitch or ditch, not as a, like a hard and fast rule, but that should be enough time of like courting getting to know somebody. Because after a year, man, you should struggle significantly to keep your sexual purity apart from the grace of God. It should be that difficult for you. And that's why you go get married. And then you commit to that person. And <laughs> if you're like, I'm just too selfish to get married, then yes, you are. You should break up with that person. Or embrace the fact that marriage will be the, the second greatest um, thing that will deal with your selfishness after parenthood. Uh, marriage will deal with your selfishness in a way that you will either have a really difficult marriage or you will become unselfish. And then, again, as a result of sex, often, not always, and I know people, are, we, my wife and I struggled to get pregnant, to stay pregnant, and not always, it doesn't always end up in babies. Um, but when it does, that will like, if there's any selfishness left, <laughs> that will deal with that. I can't even remember how we got onto this. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. I say this as a concession, not a command. I say this, which always I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is what he's saying. God may gift you with marriage. He may not gift you with marriage. If he gifts you with marriage, he, except for in very, very rare circumstances, like physical circumstances, he will gift you with sex as well. If he gives you with singleness, that is a gift that excludes. Or if he gives you with unmarriedness, as singleness being unmarriedness, um, whether you have boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever that looks like, he has gifted you with celibacy. It's a gift. We know the single person misses out on nothing at all. Here's the thing about Oh man, okay, we've got we've to jump forward. <clears throat> this is, for coming back to the original question, or the original objection, this is a classic false dichotomy. It's actually, it, it, it's a non sequitur. God cares both about sex, which he made and he gifted to us, and he cares about those who are suffering under, I mean, just significant hardship and like the vilest forms of human evil. He cares about both. We advocate where power is being used unjustly, and we advocate for human flourishing as God has gifted it to us. Uh, there, uh, I will mention one study. I wasn't going to go into all the other studies, but one study uh, looked at 86 different tribes, um, ethnicities, cultures, and empires throughout history, 86 of them, um, <clears throat> and found that in every single one of them, whenever that basic sexual ethic of the core unit being a heterosexual husband and wife, when it, uh, as a core unit of 
family of, of their civilization, whenever that uh, and sex inside the bounds of that, um, that uh, marriage, uh, whenever that was jettisoned out of a culture, it didn't last three generations. None of them. None of them. Zero, zero percent of civilizations that have been studied throughout the world, throughout history, have survived past three generations of jettisoning what we see in Scripture as a gifted approach to human flourishing uh, through sex in heterosexual marriage. Uh, in our current culture, we are at least two generations in. So we've got a very interesting generation ahead. God cares about both. This objection tries to pit God's holiness against his justice. It tries to say, well, you know, if God is holy and cares about, my, cares about sex, sex life and sexual purity and my holiness and whatnot, uh, then, you know, he obviously cares more about this than about this. That's, the, that's on Christians, actually. We've misrepresented God. This is what it says in Thessalonians 4, uh, talking about God being perfectly just and completely holy. Not one above the other. We, we often, uh, let's read it. For this is God's will, your sanctification, your set-apartness. God's will for you is your holiness. That's his will for you. That you keep away from sexual immorality. Interesting how he says, when we're talking about sanctification, what's his, where's the first place that he goes? Sexual immorality. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honour. Not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means, so he says, because of this, one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these offences, as we also previously told and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject men, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. He's saying for Christians... He's saying God cares about your holiness and, with, with, in terms of sex, and he cares that nobody uses sex unjustly. Nobody uses their power unjustly. Nobody, uh, he says, one, man, one must not transgress and take advantage of another in this manner. Not use sex for their own sexual, for their own gratification, lustful pursuits. That includes sex trafficking, that includes any kind of sexual abuse and rape and sexual misconduct includes all of those things. It says God cares about your holiness and he cares about justice. These two things are not divisible. There's no line down the middle where we can say, well, this is about God's holiness and this is about God's justice. He does not compartmentally, he does not compartmentalize discreetly like that. He can't atomize God into different parts. He is perfectly holy and wholly just. Why do people still think this? Because we misrepresent God. David Platt says, the same heart of God that moves us to war against sex trafficking also moves us to war against sexual immorality. For us, and we can advocate for and speak into culture and society, this sexual I don't want to call it a sex ethic, but uh, the sexual gift that God has given us in its right context for the flourishing of the people we're communicating to, but we must communicate it in love. We, we can't just impose our ideas of sex onto others. We've got to show them why their ideas of sex will not lead to their flourishing and their ultimate enjoyment of sex. It's deficient. It's defective. We'll show them actually, here's how God has created us and created sex and here is how it is for your good and for your joy, for your flourishing what does this all mean for us it means Christians are not to judge outsiders, we don't judge them we, we can't look at people who don't have the Holy Spirit and then say well you're being all like this and you're using sex like this, uh, you must be an evil person whereas I, who have the Holy Spirit, uh, still 80% of people like me don't do that either. We don't judge the outsiders. 
Uh, Paul, I mean, Scripture does say certainly we, we judge each other in terms of if we say, well, here's Christ and here's us and we want to be like Christ. And in what, in what way are we deficient in this as God is making us more into the likeness of Christ? This is God's will for us. We just read it, our sanctification, our holiness, our Christ-likeness, our set-apartness. And so we do rightly judge each other and say, you know what? You're living like this. Stop living like this. This is not God's ideal for you. You have abandoned God's will for your life in pursuit of sexual gratification. But we don't judge outsiders. We merely present them with the love of God. We merely present them with the deficiency of their way of life in a, in the, in a loving way, not a judgy way. Just saying, this, I, I see how you're living. Let me show you the better way. Because God loves you and he's made you like this and he's made you for this. And in the bounds of this, it's not a restriction, it's a freedom for you to do this, for your flourishing. We can't expect no mandate people live as if they have the Holy Spirit when those with the Holy Spirit struggle with sinful rebellion in the same way. Uh, it also might mean that your tribalism and your politics may be getting in the way of your witness. This is what I mean by this. Um, <clears throat> there is this, I mean, I could preach, oh, man, we do a whole seminars. Uh, there is this uh, spectrum in politics, uh, call it what you will, left or right, conservative, progressive, whatever you like. I actually don't like that simple dichotomy. I think it's multifaceted, but nevertheless, where we pin particular things at particular points along that spectrum, and we say, well, advocacy for sex trafficking, that's got to be over here on the left, wing of politics, and, but a, a, a biblical sex ethic, that's got to be over here on the right side of politics, and therefore, you choose the one that's most meaningful to you, and you go, well, I must be on the right, therefore I care less about sex trafficking. Or you, you put this in, in other contexts, you go, well, if abortion is over here, I'm, I'm pro not killing babies in the womb, so I'm over here. And uh, advocating for people escaping like war-torn countries, that's more over here, therefore if I'm over here, then yeah, I, I advocate for um, heterosexual marriage and pro-life, but I may be against uh, you know, advocacy for sex traffic, uh, victims of sex trafficking and people who are seeking refugee status. Those are false, they're not gospel categories. Not at all. And yet when we tether ourselves to a particular persuasion or part of the spectrum, uh, we start to diminish a gospel witness by not actually seeing that God is both holy and just. And he cares for, he cares for your sex life and he cares for the poor, the vulnerable, uh, the people who can't advocate for themselves, the widow and the alien. And we, we are too as well, for all of those things. Platt says, again, he says, to be sure, no one is going to act on all of these important issues in equal measure. No one can fight sex trafficking while fostering and adopting children in the middle of starting a ministry to widows and counselling unwed mothers while travelling around the world to support the persecuted church and so on. No one can do it all, right? Nor should any one of us do all of these things, for God sovereignly puts us in unique positions and places with unique privileges and opportunities to influence the culture around us. The question then is, what is God, lead, what is God leading you to do? If God is leading you to be most vocal about or advocating for those victims of sex trafficking, then be vocal on this, but don't compromise your holiness. If God is calling you to advocate for a uh, a personal, biblical um, approach to, to sexual or human flourishing in, in sex, in heterosexual marriage, then by all means be vocal over there, but don't do it in a militant, oppressive, um, imposing kind of way. What else does it mean? It means give up pornography. I know we haven't talked about this yet but pornography is the worst of both of these worlds. It's the worst of flesh, a fleshly approach to sex, and it's the worst of sex trafficking, all, all in one. Again, we could spend hours on this. It feeds sex trafficking. It feeds your sin. I'm, I'm not trying to be judgy. I don't want to like, uh, I'm not trying to like uh, cause you guilt, but I hope uh, and Lord willing, uh, even just this small paragraph tonight will help you at least to investigate ways of, of killing that sin in your life. Just to, 
Whatever you can do to, to kill that sin in your life, do it. And lastly, we made it. You did a great job. There is so much more that can be said about this. Um, but obviously we don't have time. Uh, what else does this mean for us? Know that it means we need to be born again. Nothing is untouched by the fall. Nothing. Even in the best of marriages, uh, sex in its right, um, good and proper place will still, uh, have, having been touched by the fall, will still um, not be the thing that will satisfy you. Husbands and wives will still go through times of difficulty, some great difficulty, some less difficulty, some patches of difficulty, some long periods of time of difficulty. Don't look to marriage to solve your sex problems. Um, and, and don't think that even just being born again will all of a sudden uh, reduce your sex drive as a single person. Don't think that becoming a Christian means that, oh, now I won't want to look at porn anymore. Don't think, well, now I'm a Christian, uh, I won't want to look at other men or women that I'm not married to. Don't think that when you just become a Christian, all of a sudden, my same-sex attraction will go away. There's nothing that's been untouched by the fall. Everything, and yet nothing, nothing is not also touched by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in you. God has given you, in Christ, everything necessary for holiness and right living, including when it comes to sex. Christopher Yuan says, when, we've been, when we are born again uh, through God's word and by his spirit, the old is gone and the new has come. We are a new creation. We are able to hate our sin without hating ourselves. Our sexuality is no longer who we are, but rather how we are. We put to death our old self so that Christ can live in us. The effect of sin is so pervasive, so complete, so radical, that complete rebirth must occur for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what it means. Um, we can't hang on to any of our old life. You don't belong to yourself anymore. I don't belong to myself anymore. I don't own me. I was purchased by the blood of Jesus. It's what we commemorate and celebrate when we come around the Lord's table every week. We've been purchased by his body and by his blood. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. I am not mine to give away. And then when I get married, I, now, I even now belong to my wife. I belong to God and I belong to my wife. I am not my own. So when it comes to sex, I, I, not just sex, every, every aspect of us. But tonight we're talking about sex. We need to be operating out of our new creation, not out of our old creation and its old sinful desires. doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with those, but it means we put them to death and live in the new. You are new. You can live that kind of life. God does care about it. Even if somehow you are in this room and you are amongst that 64%. God cares about your holiness. He sent Jesus to die for your holiness. Let me quote Fabian Harford in closing. Nothing makes God look as beautiful as when we who have tasted his goodness would use our lives to testify that we will forgo any momentary joy in order to taste more of him. I love that. She has a great way with words. Nothing makes God look as beautiful as when we who have tasted his goodness would use our lives to testify that we will forgo any momentary joy in order to taste more of him. This is that third reason for sex is that it points to something. It points to how beautiful God is. Notice how beautiful we find a member of maybe the opposite sex in, in, in satisfying our, like, or gratifying our lustful desires. No, no. We show in how we approach sex as a single person, as a married person, how beautiful God is. And it communicates to those who know us in the world around us how beautiful God is. Sex is, is for pleasure, but it's not just for pleasure. It is for procreation. It's not just for procreation. It is for proclamation also. Your engagement in and enjoyment of sex tells you and your partner and whoever else to tell about it what you believe about God 
what you believe about your relationship with him, what you believe about yourself and how he's created you, about where your identity is found, and about what is most glorious to you and most beautiful to you, and may that be Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we, oh, you know, we are in desperate need of your, of your help. Nothing and nobody else tells us the same message, that, that sex is not purely biological. I mean, sure, um, psychologists and, and anthropologists are starting to, sh- to show what you have made known uh, in your scriptures for a very long time, that sex indeed is much more than just a, a mechanistic function of human bodies, but so much more is going on. You've gifted us sex uh, in its proper place for our joy, for our flourishing, for our procreation, for healing and for mending and for bonding. And as a sign of Christ and his bride, us, his church, would you help us to pursue holiness? Especially around, around sex. Um, that we don't want to <clears throat> any longer sin against um, our own bodies, this temple of the Holy Spirit, where you reside in us. We're so sorry for those times uh, that this, is, this has been true of us. We're sorry where we have not pursued holiness, but rather pursued the flesh, fleshly desires of the old creation. Father, we're also sorry for those times we have neglected the poor, neglected those who can't advocate for themselves, uh, we haven't been powerful for the powerless. We're sorry. They help us. And we know you do care about the widow, the orphan, the alien, the refugee, the victim of sex trafficking. Uh, it is a heartbreaking thing to think about. Father, that this happens in the world, uh, in our day. We thank you for those who are fighting it. Thank you for those uh, who are doing this in your name. Thank you that it's mostly people in your name who are doing this. Uh, may that be what we are known for, as well as pursuing uh, your best in our sex life. Not just what we're against, but uh, what we are for, and that is for human flourishing, Uh, as you have made us to flourish, for right relationship with you and with each other. Father, help us uh, who do have your Holy Spirit to live Holy Spirit-empowered lives and to proclaim this life to others so that they may taste of your goodness, so they may see your beauty, so they may experience your freedom, so that they won't be caught up identifying in what they do with their bodies, uh, but that they would do with their bodies that which is pleasing to you because they are found in you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.